In March of 1980, a mountain in the state of Washington began to emit steam, and the mountain happened to be a dormant volcano. It appeared to geologists that uh, it was awakening from its slumber. The mountain, as you may recall, if you're old enough, was Mount St. Helens. And uh, by the next month, in 1980, that mountain began to emit volcanic ash. Uh, one slope of the mountain, the north slope, began swelling by five feet every single day. And geologists became increasingly worried that the volcano would erupt. The situation seemed so dire that officials in that area decided to forcibly evacuate all the people there surrounding Mount St. Helens. And on one side of the mountain, there was this uh, beautiful, crystal clear mountain lake called Spirit Lake. And a man that lived by the lake there his, uh, was an older man by the name of Harry Truman, not the former president. Uh, but Harry Truman lived in a lodge on the shores of Spirit Lake. And he had lived there for 50 years. And when the authorities told Harry to evacuate, he adamantly refused to do so. He was quoted as saying, no one knows more about this mountain than Harry. And it don't dare blow up on me. This mountain won't blow. I cleaned up his language for church today. Harry became an instant celebrity. Uh, the press fell over themselves trying to talk to him. Uh, he was an overnight sensation. Government officials, friends of his, even entire school class tried to convince him to evacuate, but to no avail. To all of the pleading, Harry turned a deaf ear. By the following month, the north slope of Mount St. Helens was swelling at a rate of 50 feet every day. And in an interview on May 17, 1980, Harry said, They've been saying the mountain is going to erupt for over seven years, and it hasn't. I obviously know more than the experts. His point was simple. Everything is just like it's always been. At 8.32, the very next day, May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted with the force equivalent to 500 atomic bombs. The force of that blast leveled 150 square miles of forest in six minutes. Hurricane force winds stripped the soil from nearby ridges and hillsides, leaving bare rock. In nearby cities like Yakima and Pasco, it looked like it was snowing. Volcanic ash poured down on everything. It turned day into night. A geologist from Vancouver who was monitoring the blast from what he thought was a safe distance transmitted the words, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. And then a wave of scorching volcanic gases and rock fragments that shot horizontally from the volcano's uh, flank at 200 miles per hour killed them. An earthquake registered five on the Richter scale, and it triggered the largest landslide in recorded history. The south side of the uh, mountain, Shoestring gl Glacier, melted instantly picking up millions of tons of dirt and rock and taking off at 45 miles an hour. The greatest devastation was on the north side of Mount St. Helens where Harry Truman lived. The eruption was so violent 
that the entire north side of the mountain slid down into Spirit Lake at 150 miles per hour. It totally filled up the lake. And when it was over, Mount St. Helens was 1,300 feet shorter than it had been and had a new crater on the north side of the mountain 2,000 feet deep. Almost 50 people died that day that Mount St. Helens blew. Harry Truman was buried under 600 feet of mountain. His body was never recovered. He ignored all of the signals that would have preserved his life, and he died because he stubbornly held on to one idea. Everything is just as it's always been. You know, there's a lot of people that are just like Harry today. Maybe not in imminent danger of a mountain blowing up, but they're displaying the same attitude that he had. Everything is just like it's always been. They're too stubborn to listen to the warnings, and every warning from God says the same thing. Judgment is coming, so take your way of escape today. If we're not careful... We'll become like that old uh, Pilgrim's Progress character. Remember John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And there are a number of characters in that book, and one of them was named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He thought that he had all the answers to life. People like Harry say, hey, they've been saying that God's judgment is going to come for a long time now, and it hasn't. So maybe it'll never come. Everything is just like it's always been. But I want to encourage you to have a different mindset, a different attitude, a different belief. I want to encourage you today to put your mind on the invisible things above, to let your mind and your heart dwell there, the things that you can't see. Because if, if you indeed look at your experience in this world with these eyes, and this physical experience that you now have, you'll miss it, and you'll say, hey, things are always like they've always been. And you may even begin to believe there's no judgment coming. But if you have your mind set on the things of God, then you understand the truth of the matter. And now I want you to take your Bible, if you have it, and turn to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we'll display this up on the screen behind me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And this is what God's Word says. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. 
But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You have a choice today who you're going to believe. You can believe these eyes where you see everything from your own perspective, or you can believe what God who created you says. And if you're going to believe God, if you're going to take God's warning seriously, you need to have a mind that is sincere. Verse 1 again says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter had written a previous book that we had previously studied in 1 Peter. But even in the previous chapter of this book, in 2 Peter, we discovered how false teachers can lead us astray. False teachers can teach us bad doctrine, and that will lead to bad moral choices on our lives and, and completely, uh, if possible, destroy our lives and change our destiny. And now comes the therefore. Now, Peter says... In contrast to the false teachers of chapter 2, he says you should have a sincere mind. He's stirring up your sincere mind. Sincerity of mind, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a sincere mind? I mean, if God's Word is telling us, have a sincere mind, we, you know, we might think about that say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try to have a sincere mind. But what does that really mean? To have a sincere mind me, means this. Have wholesome thinking. It means to have wholesome thinking. It's the idea of being strong-minded. Someone who has wholesome thinking, there's no doubt, there's no wavering as to how they should live. They know how to live. And so they're strong in their life. They're not feeble-minded. They're not going to be easily misled. You're thoughtful. You're not gullible. You've made up your mind. You're going to live according to God's Word. You have a sincere mind about it. And it's not very hard to have a sincere mind. It simply takes an understanding, a, a decision on your part to say, okay, this is the way I'm going to live. This is how I'm going to believe. And so you make your choice. I'm going to believe God as opposed to believing the world. To have wholesome thinking, to have a sincere mind means that you think with integrity. And you, you ask this of every situation. What's the right thing to do here? What is the right thing to do here? What should I do? What is the right thing to do? Morally, ethically, what is the right thing to do? You know, a lot of times uh, people get, uh, get confused about God's will. They say, oh, you know, I want, I want to do God's will, and they're presented with an option. They're presented with uh, this career or that career. They're presented with marrying this person or, or not being married or marrying this other person. They're, they're, they're considering all different types of things that come along in life, and God's Word, nowhere in God's Word does it say, okay, this is God's will for you to go down this path and make this type of decision that will impact your career or to make this other career choice or to marry this person or to marry that person or to remain single. God, God's will is not understood in Scripture as that. God's will is very simple when you read about it in Scripture. Do a word study sometime and Check out where in the New Testament says either God's will or the will of God. Same thing. And you'll find that God's will is always about your moral choices. It's about doing the right thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God. What's God's will for my life? It's very simple. God's will for your life is to do the right thing. Do the right thing. Make the right choices. Having a life of integrity. When you have wholesome thinking, when you have a sincere mind, it means that you have pure thinking. It means that you look at other people not as a means to get what you want, but rather as recipients of God's love or potential recipients of God's love if they don't currently experience God's love as they should. You see people as uh, people for whom Christ died, not simply as people that can get you what you want. So you have sincerity of mind. You have wholesome thinking. It means you're strong. It means you have integrity. It means you have purity in your mind. And the reason you should have a sincere mind is because you need to be ready when God breaks into history again. In other words, be this type of person right now because you don't know when God will step into history again in a major way and say, time's up. To put it in a, a less eschatological perspective less of a perspective of the last days because sometimes it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that okay yeah jesus is coming back we may believe that but in in maybe some part of our mind we think uh, it might be a thousand years from now i don't know so let's put it in a in a purely human perspective you need to have a sincere mind because you don't know when you're going to die and when you die it's over when you die the totality of your existence on earth has come to a conclusion and whoever you are whatever you believe has been set in stone no chance to make uh, second chances do-overs mulligans not after you die it's over and so just to put it in a human perspective i think peter would just as well say to us you need to have a sincere mind you need to be a person who has a mind of strength a mind of integrity, a mind of purity today because you don't know when today will be the last day. You don't know when God's going to break into history. You don't know when God might say to you, your time's up. I hope you lived well. I hope you lived right. God will break into history again. Verse 2 says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter's basically saying, listen, remember the predictions of those Old Testament prophets. They told us that God's kingdom was coming, and it has come through the person of Jesus Christ. Peter says, remember the commandment that Jesus himself gave us and that his apostles wrote down in the New Testament for us. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said that false prophets would try to mislead us. And that's exactly what they've tried to do. Peter is saying to us, everything that God has said in the past has come true. And so believe in it. Remember those promises of God. Because if God kept His word 4,000 years ago, and God kept His Word 3,000 years ago, and God kept His Word 2,000 years ago, it's a pretty good chance, don't you think, that God's going to keep His Word now. 
And if God is saying the judgment's coming, you better believe it. You need to believe it. God has promised that Jesus Christ will return. God has promised that He will judge the earth, that He will right all wrongs, and so believe in the promises of God. That's what Peter is saying to us. Verses 3 and 4, he continues. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their own mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What do scoffers today say? What do mockers say? Ah, Jesus isn't coming back. It's just as it's always been. They have the attitude of Harry on Mount St. Helens. Everything's the same as it's always been. Scoffers say things like, oh, there is no God. They say things like, okay, yeah, okay, maybe God exists, and maybe He did something in the past. Maybe, maybe I'll even give it to you that He created the world, but God's not involved anymore. God doesn't care. Mockers say that God is way out there, and He's, he's distant from us. He doesn't get involved in our affairs. In other words, they're saying that the universe is may have been created by God, but they say now it's just a, a closed, naturalistic system of cause and effect, and that's all it is. This kind of view is known as uniformitarianism. And John MacArthur writes that this view asserts that the only natural processes that have ever operated in the past are the same that still work today. And there's a categorical deniability that God intervenes in world history today. And so this type of idea influenced a 19th century British lawyer and geologist named Charles Lyell, and he wrote a book called The Principles of Geology that had a very profound effect on the scientific community of that day. And the same idea was the main puller upon which Charles Darwin wrote and established his theory of evolution. And so you've got a choice to make. Are you going to believe that there is no God? Are you going to believe that maybe there's a God out there, but He doesn't really care about me? He doesn't really care about us. He doesn't really get involved. And He's not going to judge the world. Is that going to be your belief? Are you going to believe God's Word? That God will intervene in our world again, and He'll do it comprehensively. And I want to give you three reasons from the Bible in this passage that we read why we can trust that God will intervene in our world again. First, God intervened in the world when He created it. I mean, think about it. Scoffers say, well, ever since the creation of the world, things have always been the same. God's not going to intervene. But they missed the whole point of their argument. God intervened when He created this world. Verse 5 says... For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Peter says, God, based on his word and his word alone, created the whole world. And if God intervened by creating the world, why can't he intervene to destroy the world? A second reason you can trust that God's going to intervene in our world again is because God intervened in Noah's day. 
Someone might say, okay, yeah, okay, God intervened when he created the world, but that's about it. He just sort of left the scene. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that God was very involved in Noah's day, and he intervened to destroy the world at that point. Verse 6 tells us that, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. God intervened by his word, verse 5 says, he created the world. Verse 6 says, through his word, he flooded the earth. You know, in Noah's day, people were just living their lives without any thought of God, except for one little family, Noah and his family. And except for them, there was no idea that God would cleanse the world of wickedness and the effects of sin, but that's exactly what happened. If God intervened to cleanse the world of wickedness during Noah's flood, why can't he intervene to destroy the whole world? Except this time by fire. You know, there are events even in our world today, and I'd say that our world is exceedingly wicked. You look at the, the, uh, all types of wickedness throughout our world. The lying and the cheating and all the type of uh, sexual immorality that this world is engaged in. And how it's just... Uh, proliferates all throughout the world but there are events every now and then where it seems that uh, the world's attention can be brought to pause for just a moment on 9-11 the world the entire world took notice of 9-11 we had about 3,000 people die in 9-11 you know every single day 150,000 people die or so 3,000 died in 9-11. The whole world took notice of that. And that was an act of man. Not too long after that, a tsunami hit in the Indian Ocean. A quarter of a million people died. The world took notice of that. Every once in a while, the world will take notice of things that it can't control. Are we so arrogant to think that God cannot intervene in our world in such a way that he makes the world stand up and take notice. There is coming a day, a day when the entire world will be destroyed, not by flood, but by fire. And the third reason that you can trust that God's going to intervene in our world again is because, is, is because God has promised that this will be so. God has promised that the world will be burned and the ungodly will be judged. Verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You know, the ancient pagans, way, way, way back when, they believed in a cycle of destruction of by, by fire and renewal. Destruction by fire and then renewal. And there was a group of monotheistic Zoroastrians. They thought of fire as strictly purification. But the Jews and the Christians, they associated fire with the destruction of the wicked. And then the one-time new creation of the new heaven and earth. Listen to Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. It says this in verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. 
For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. The New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus has revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament are very clear. Judgment is coming. The truth of the matter is that not only will God intervene in the future, but God is working in our hearts right now. There is a great and terrible day of judgment coming. But God works in our hearts now. He gives us an opportunity for us to trust and believe in Him. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the uniform picture of Scripture is very clear. There are only two destinies. A destiny of fire and judgment. Or a destiny of being raised up. A destiny of being protected. We know that Scripture says that we'll be given a glorified body, a resurrected body. And that we will dwell with the Lord forever. So this is the testimony of Scripture, and it is up to each one of us to choose what we believe. Peter says in verse 5, By God's word he created the world. He says in verse 6, Through God's word he flooded the earth. And in verse 7, God has given us his word that he will destroy the world by fire. It is about whether you believe in God's word. And if you do, you trust Christ. And if you don't, you can scoff and mock all you wish. Live your life any way that you wish. We'll find out someday if God kept his word.